everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host, Sarah Dong. I am a combined adult and pediatric ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case, and we'll pause along the way to hear from our guest. As a quick disclaimer before we dive in, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. I am very excited because we have mostly featured adult cases so far, and we are rolling out a couple pediatric episodes. Um, I do think that even though this is a pediatric case, there are a ton of educational points that will span the ages. So please stay tuned, even if you prefer to take care of the bigger slash older patients. I will introduce our guest, Dr. Gabriella Lamb or Gabby. Gabby completed undergrad at Boston University and then moved to Texas, where she attended medical school at Baylor College of Medicine, pediatric residency at University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas, and then pediatric ID fellowship at Texas Children's Hospital. While in fellowship, she obtained her MPH at the University of Texas, Houston, and Gabby has since relocated to Boston to work at Boston Children's Hospital as of August 2019. At Boston Children's, she is a clinician educator and the director of quality improvement for the Division of Infectious Diseases. Welcome, Gabby. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, We are starting off just by asking everyone to share some culture that brings you joy, whatever that may be, just some, preferably something non-medical. So one of my favorite (laughs) things to do outside of work is go to the ballet. Um, Pre-pandemic, I used to really enjoy going in person, Um, so I've definitely missed that a lot, but I've been able to find ways to uh, stream ballets actually online, so that's part of what I've been doing in my free time. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I mean, when you make a list of silver linings from the pandemic, I do think people have tried to make like dance and symphony performances and other things available, either like archived online or new performances, so that's been nice. Okay, So we'll jump in. We have a new consult today. Um, It is a five-year-old boy with fever and belly pain. So the team's consult question is to please assist with antibiotics and workup. So our five-year-old boy comes in today, like I mentioned, has fever and abdominal pain. His parents mentioned that he seemed a little bit more tired and fatigued lately, but they hadn't really thought much of it. Um, But Over the past week or so, he really hasn't been playing with his toys, like his Hot Wheels as much. And then over the past maybe one to two days, he started complaining of abdominal pain. Um, He wasn't really eating when they were sitting down for meals. But no vomiting, no shortness of breath or complaints of pain elsewhere. He hasn't had rashes or really anything else that they've noticed. Um, But when they put him down to bed last night, mom thought he felt warm and checked and found he had a a fever to 101 Fahrenheit. Um, So before this, it sounds like he's pretty healthy. When you ask the parents, they mentioned he's had one prior hospitalization when he was three. They don't really remember the details, but they do know and describe what sounds like an episode of cervical lymphadenitis. 
Um, they do know he was treated with antibiotics and that he needed some sort of drainage at the time. Um, the one thing they do remember is that he definitely was taking clindamycin because it tasted awful. And he did one week of what sounds like nasal mupirocin at the time of discharge. And so since that time, he's had like a couple skin infections, but they said they've managed it at home or at worst saw the pediatrician. Um, and then before that, really his perinatal course, his early um, toddler age, he really didn't have another issues. Um, and he is up to date on his immunizations. He's had no issues with getting his vaccines. And I will give you a little bit of family and social history. He is the first and only child. His parents are both healthy, and he lives with his parents and his paternal grandpa. They currently live in the southern U.S., um, but they previously lived in Mexico City and moved to the U.S. about a year ago. And they have a pet turtle named Sir Sammy. <laughs> so I will <laughs> pause here just to see what thoughts you already have and like how you're already sort of summarizing the patient in your head. Yeah. Um, so just a, a brief recap. So this is a five-year-old coming in with fever and new onset abdominal pain. Sounds like otherwise uh, he's been a pretty healthy child with the exception of an episode of a cervical lymphadenitis. Um, so common things being common in this age group and with this presentation, I would worry about things like uh, urinary tract infections. Um, common bacteria include, you know, typical stool flora, E. coli, enterococcus. Um, you might also, you know, if it's ascended, especially with the fever and the abdominal pain, you might consider uh, more of an upper tract disease like pyelonephritis. I would worry about appendicitis. And then also depending on where the abdominal pain is, if it's a little bit higher up, you might consider pneumonia, though it doesn't sound like he's really having much uh, respiratory symptoms. Um, it doesn't sound like he's having vomiting or diarrhea. Um, but, you know, common causes of fever and abdominal pain include viral gastroenteritis, but it really doesn't sound like it fits for this case. Um, you can see uh, animal or foodborne illnesses, uh, most commonly uh, that uh, with bacterial etiologies, most commonly these do cause diarrhea and can include things like E. coli or Shigella, um, sometimes Giardia. But it is interesting that he's ex been exposed to a pet turtle, which in, um, causes risk of transmission of salmonella, um, which doesn't necessarily present with diarrhea. Um, so that's definitely something that's on my list. Great. Um, and so I will give you a little bit from the physical exam. He had a fever to 102.3 Fahrenheit or 39 Celsius. He is a little bit tachycardic. Um, his height and weight percentiles are around the third to fifth percentile. Um, he does not appear acutely ill, but he certainly looks fatigued. He's laying in mom's lap and is watching Paw Patrol on the little TV. Um, he has some decreased air entry on the right lower lung base, but no obvious crackles. 
And when you ask him sort of where on his belly it hurts, he initially points in sort of the epigastric right upper quadrant area, but then sort of motions along the right side in general. Um, and so it does seem to be diffusely tender. It's a little bit hard to figure out where because he starts crying, but he does not have any clear rebound or true guarding on exam. Um, otherwise, the only other thing you notice is a couple scars from these prior skin infections that the parents mentioned. Um, as far as the couple labs that he has so far, on his CBC, his Y count is 9,000. Um, the rest of his CBC remains normal. His CRP is elevated at 50. And then on his liver function test, his T-Billy, AST, ALT are in the normal range, but his ALKFOS is a bit elevated in the 300s. Um, so I thought I would pause again here with that new info and see sort of how you're tailoring your list. Yeah, so that's definitely helpful. There seems to be a, a focus of infection on the right upper portion of the abdomen. Um, so, you know, anatomically is something happening with the hepatobiliary system? Um, is there some sort of obstructive process maybe going on? Uh, you did mention that um, the family came from Mexico, so there's increased incidence of um, amoebic liver abscesses in Mexico. So uh, I would consider something um, along the lines of that, specifically with entamoeba histolytica. And then with the epigastric pain, you could consider uh, pancreatitis as well. He is definitely on the younger age range for this, but we do see it uh, sometimes in children this age. Yeah. Um, and so what are your thoughts on how to approach imaging? Is there, do you start with ultrasound? Do you feel like we need to jump to CT MRI? What do you think? I typically start with an abdominal ultrasound. It's pretty non-invasive and would like to spare the child radiation if possible. And generally kids, especially this age, um, their body habitus allows for good imaging with abdominal ultrasounds. Yeah. Um, and so we do that and get an abdominal ultrasound that shows some loculated fluid in the right hepatic lobe. And so he does go for a subsequent CT abdomen. Um, and this demonstrates a solitary abscess. It's about three to four centimeters. It does have peripheral enhancement and what is described as sort of multi-septal or multi-loculated changes within the central part of the abscess. Um, and so the pediatrics team is who we've been talking to wants to figure out what we should do for empiric therapy um, and what next steps we should do. <laughs> yeah. um, so there's clearly a walled off collection within the liver. So with this, you kind of think, is this pyogenic or amoebic? We, we discussed the potential risk uh, having lived in Mexico before for entamoeba histolytica. Um, we also see pyogenic abscesses, which are typically polymicrobial um, with enteric gram negatives such as E. coli or Klebsiella. Uh, you can also see staph infections cause this. He's had several skin infections, so um, definitely seems like he might be colonized with staph aureus. Um, and then anaerobes as well. I, I definitely think having a sample would be helpful to know exactly what we're treating. 
So that would be kind of my next request is to get either the, the surgeons or interventional radiology involved to see if we could get some culture data. Yeah. And would you like to start something now as far as antibiotics? Uh, you could go, you know, with um, good kind of broad intra-abdominal coverage, like a ceftraxone, metronidazole. Um, you would have MSSA coverage. You would be missing MRSA coverage with that. Um, so it would be great if there was a little bit more information about you know, if he's colonized with MRSA and what he grew before, um, because if there's worry about MRSA, then you would want to have some type of MRSA coverage with like vancomycin, for example. Um, and so there is a discussion between interventional radiology and surgery. And ultimately, it is decided that the patient was going to go for surgery. And so does have a laparotomy. And it sounds like uh, gross pure material was drained and sent to micro. And so I will speed up a little bit and just tell you that your cultures came back with MSSA, Staph aureus. And so, you know, does Staph aureus in this situation make sense to you or does it make you worried about anything else? Yeah, so this is actually kind of one of those buzzword presentations actually for like boards and such. When you have a child present with a staph liver abscess, you definitely have to worry about uh, chronic granulomatous disease. Yeah, so that's my concern as well, because we have this patient with this staph liver abscess who also has had a cervical lymphadenitis and a couple prior skin infections. Um, and so when you are concerned about chronic granulomatous disease or CGD, what is your first step to approaching this? Are you sending off an initial panel of labs? Are you calling immunology? Um, I wanted to see how you approach it when you're worried about this diagnosis. I feel comfortable, you know, doing a basic immune workup uh, as an ID consultant with things like immune globulins, um, you know, HIV testing, and then testing for CGD, which um, we're really looking for super oxide production with the, the nitro blue tetrazolium reduction um, or uh, DHR testing. Uh, however, if, um, you know, I'm truly concerned about a potential primary immune deficiency, I do think it's important to get our immunology colleagues on board uh, because they'll need more long-term follow-up. Yeah. Um, and so we do talk to immunology. We sent off this initial workup, and he is ultimately found to have a new diagnosis of CGD. Before we talk about this case anymore, I thought this was a good place to pause and talk about CGD more generally, because um, I think most people recognize that this is something we should know, but may not see it that frequently, depending on where your practice is. And so you mentioned some of the diagnostic testing already. By that, we could also cover the, quote, classic CGD organisms, because I think if people remember only one thing from this episode, it would be that list of CGD bugs. Yeah, perfect. Um, so we know, in general, chronic granulomatous disease is caused by defects in uh, the phagocyte NADPH oxidase complex. So then you're just, your phagocytes have an inability to kill certain bacteria and fungi. 
Um, so there's certain kind of classic bugs that you think about in CGD. Uh, recurrent staphylococcal infections is one of them. Um, other kind of buzzword um, organisms include uh, Serratia marcescens, Burkholderia cepatia, uh, Chromobacterium violatium, uh, Nocardia, and Aspergillus. Uh, but you can also see, um, depending on what country you're in, uh, children that get BCG vaccination, they can have problems controlling that as an infection. Um, and you can also see infections uh, with non-tuberculous mycobacteria as well. That is a great summary of the key CGD organisms to remember. Um, and so we'll think back to our patient specifically who has newly diagnosed CGD and a staph virus liver abscess. And you pointed out that this is often a buzz word or buzz association. And it's important to emphasize that staph abscess in this context is actually known for some characteristic features that differentiated sometimes from other pyogenic liver abscesses. And so I was hoping that you could point some of those out to our listeners. Yeah. So something that's really interesting um, about how patients with CGD form abscesses is that they form these really dense, highly septated abscesses. Oftentimes they'll have this um, fibrinous pseudocapsule on the outside and the fluid itself is typically really thick. Um, which actually makes it very difficult to drain percutaneously. Um, so a mainstay of treatment for this has really been surgery with a, with a general surgeon as opposed to IR drainage. And I think there is some literature about the use of steroids in this setting. Do you feel like you frequently are offering steroids? Ah, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I would say that I typically have not necessarily offered steroids. Um, however, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's incorrect to do so. So historically, surgery has really been the standard of care for management of these infections. Um, but over about the past decade or so, there's this growing body of literature, mainly from case reports and case series, um, about potential benefit with concomitant use of corticosteroids with antibiotics. Um, you know, it's not a super common diagnosis, so you don't get huge numbers. So it, in general, makes getting solid data difficult. Yeah. Um, but it seems to be an evolving and more common practice. Um, so perhaps I would consider it in the future. Yeah. Um, and an another tough question is how long to treat for liver abscess? Um, and how do you approach deciding the end of therapy? So it's, it's difficult in these patients because they don't... Um, aren't able to properly use their immune system to help our antibiotics, you know, treat the infection. Um, so in general, patients that I've had with CGD have required longer courses of antibiotics than otherwise healthy children with different types of abscesses, oftentimes on the order of a few weeks. Um, so having uh, serial ultrasounds would be helpful to kind of keep track of the resolution of the liver abscess. Um, and this is really more based on, you know, personal experience and stylistic changes. You may have someone that does this a little bit differently, but um, 
I like to use imaging to help in, in symptomatic improvement. This child also had elevated inflammatory markers, so that might be another helpful way to track improvement. Um, so I don't necessarily have a solid number of, you know, I treat two weeks, for example, but um, depends on clinical improvement and, and repeat abdominal imaging. Yeah. I will jump forward a little bit. He is at the end of his uh, treatment course for the liver abscess, and the plan is to switch over to antimicrobial prophylaxis and setting of a CGD. So I thought we could also talk really quickly on that because I think at these at this point most people sort of think of lifelong prophylaxis as um kind of standard of care. Yeah, that that's correct. So. Um... We do know with the implementation of the use of antimicrobial prophylaxis, we've had improved long-term prognosis um, for these patients. Um, and this typically consists of a combination of uh, both antifungal and antibacterial therapy because these patients are at risk both for bacterial infections as well as um, fungal infections. And then plus or minus some immunomodulatory therapy, and that actually will vary center by center. Um, so the long-term antibacterial prophylaxis, um, is typically with trimethoprim sulfa. Um, but if the patient has an allergy, there's other, um, antibiotics you could consider, including some oral cephalosporins or a fluoroquinolone. Um, I will say the data for this is mainly based on retrospective, um, reviews, um, but that did demonstrate overall improved prognosis with antibacterial prophylaxis. Uh, in addition, children or patients with uh, CGD uh, require lifelong antifungal prophylaxis. This is also considered standard of care. Uh, and data from this come from observational studies, and there was a, one single randomized control trial um, that demonstrated its benefit. And this is typically with uh, itraconazole. Uh, and then lastly, depending on the center, um, patients may or may not receive interferon gamma. Um, this was based on a multi-center randomized control trial that studied prophylaxis, in which case um, the placebo in the placebo group, about half of the patients developed at least one serious infection compared to less than a quarter of the patients in the interferon gamma uh, group. So um, at least within our center, this is part of the um, standard of care for our patients. And I was trying to think of sort of emphasizing things for those who may see adult patients. And the big thing that I felt like is important is that now, I mean, these patients who are diagnosed are frequently living into adulthood now, but you also can have an adult presentation uh, that, that's absolutely true. So actually, CGD can present really at any time from infancy to late adulthood. Um, though most children are diagnosed before the age of five, there is a growing number of patients that are being diagnosed later in life. Um, and it's probably due to recognition of milder cases. So it really is a genetically heterogeneous um, disease uh, that we're really actually diagnosing more and more using molecular diagnostics to identify yeah. the exact gene mutation. Yeah. And so I think outside of knowing it for life, it is also on the adult ID boards. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think it is a commonly missed question, but they will generally set up a CGD patient and will typically have one of the classic organisms. And I think yours is a pick out um, their underlying immunodeficiency. And then the other, I was going to mention just two other things is um, we talked a bit about granulomas and I think it's useful to know that patients with CGD are really prone to granulomas and really any viscous, in particular the GI tract. Um, And so I think for listeners knowing that gastric outlet obstruction might be how a patient with CGD presents and that knowing that there is a granulomatous colitis that can be seen in CGD patients, that's really going to look like Crohn's disease. And the patients may be presenting in that same sort of age range of uh, late childhood, early adulthood. Um, and so the key there is that infliximab does help the bowel disease in CGD, but you're obviously worried about the risk of infection and making sure that you have good prophylaxis and infection surveillance or appropriate infection surveillance. And then the other thing I was going to point out, this certainly could happen in pediatrics, but I think most of the younger kids are maybe not doing these tasks. Um, But there's this clinical entity of mulch pneumonitis, which is this severe respiratory failure after high-level exposure to aerosolized fungi. And so most of the case reports are heavy mulching or wood chipping or lawn mowing. I did see one in a teenager that mentioned they were cleaning gutters that had lots of like dead leaves and organic matter. Um, And so these patients have, with this activity, this large burden of fungal spores and hyphae that they inhale and have this new syndrome with acute dyspnea and hypoxia and pulmonary infiltrates plus or minus fever, and then can have really fulminant respiratory failure and even death pretty quickly. Um, And so another, I think for here, it's key to point out that in addition to antifungals, I think someone recommend that you give glucocorticoids to hopefully improve, um, improve their disease. Yeah. And that's actually interesting that you brought it up because that's where the, um, idea for possibly using steroids for um, treatment of the liver abscesses came from was um, from its use in mulch pneumonitis. Yeah. So I think for me, even if if you don't see this, it, it helped helps me sometimes to remember the extreme clinical case to, to tie together. So I, it could be any fungus, but I think aspergillus in particular is what's been shown in a couple of the series to really have the highest mortality for CGD patients. Um, and certainly if you had a patient who had, uh, fulminant invasive fungal pneumonia and you don't have a reason for it, like pre-existing iatrogenic immunosuppression of some kind, then keeping CGD on your consideration list would be important both for therapy at the time and offering steroids, but certainly, genetic testing and prophylaxis down the road, hopefully because they survive and do okay. So we covered a lot. We covered bugs and liver abscess. We talked about CGD and classic organisms um, and a couple of the sort of management questions that come up with that. And I always like to end by just asking if there's any other sort of 
high yield points that you want to emphasize, or you can talk about how you love ID. You could do both. <laughs> well, I do love ID. I think we have the most fun job. Um, so at least from my perspective, um, on the pediatric side, I think you hit a lot of great points, um, especially thinking about the older kids, um, especially the presentation with CGD colitis. I've, I've definitely seen actually adolescent twins have that as their presentation um, wow. for CGD. Um, but from a little bit younger perspective, though this can also happen in adults, um, if you have a kid present with lymphadenitis with one of these weird bugs, um, for example, I've seen a child present with serratia lymphadenitis, uh, definitely you have to think about CGD um, or kids with a lot of staph infections. That's kind of the other thing that really just have it in the back of your mind if something's a bit unusual and you've got one of these uh, key bugs, then definitely think about CGD. Yeah, and I always think that's the hard thing too is figuring out how many infections is too many. And I feel like, especially if they're not that sick, sometimes it's hard for people, the patient themselves or parents to remember um, if it's pretty mild. Yeah, exactly. And I think especially with this kind of variety of um, genetic mutations possibly causing more mild phenotypes and um, our over time continued improvement with antibiotics, uh, it seems like as kids or adults respond well to antibiotics, you might not think that something unusual is going on. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Gavin, this was great. I'll put links to several of the articles we talked about today in our consult notes, which we put on the website. Um, and I'm looking forward to having more pediatric cases. Um, and thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Febrile. You can look on our website, febrilepodcast.com, for post-episode consult notes. There, I'll put links about the articles we spoke of today, as well as some other summaries. For example, don't forget your top CGD organisms, Aspergillus, Serratia, Staph aureus, Nocardia, and Burkholderia. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Please connect and follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Tell me topics that you're interested in and who to feature on future shows. I also don't mind if you want to send me ID jokes or puns if you have them. And lastly, I am always on the lookout for new fellows or trainees who want to help join and create episodes. So thanks again for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.